Hello and welcome to this week's Market Thinkers webinar titled, Has COVID-19 Paved a New Way for a More Sustainable Future? My name is Jamie Nemesis and I join, I'm joined with my business partner, Drew Meredith and Tom King, Chief Investment Officer of the Sydney-based Nanook Asset Management. Hi, Drew. Hi, Tom. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Jamie. For the new listeners, Drew and I run a financial planning company in Melbourne called Wardle Partners, and I have done so for 20 years. The firm is linked back to 1973, when its then founder was the first real advocate for investor rights, Austin Donnelly, establishing what we believe was the first fee-for-service and independent wealth firm in Australia. Donnelly drive a dealer's license, number one in Queensland. Today, Drew and I and our team have the same beliefs as him, and we're very honoured to manage a number of clients' financial affairs. The Market Thinkers series was designed to bring you, the client and investor, closer to markets, to thinkers, to fund managers like Tom, um, things that Drew and I take for priv a privilege to do every day. Hopefully, we can uh, show the more human side of investing. And in this session, we're, we're, we're lucky to have Tom King of Nanook Asset Management, one of Australia's only specialised global equity managers, focusing on companies contributing positively to a more sustainable global economy. The fund that Tom runs is called the New World Fund. In fact, Tom, I believe you recently won an award, the Responsible Manager of the Year Award from Money Management. Well done on that part. It's worth noting Waddle Partners has recently joined the Responsible Investment Association of Australia, a group dedicated to a more sustainable and responsible uh, investing. And I think we're the only financial planner in Australia with B Corp status, a movement out of the US, which is encouraging companies to not just have financial goals, but also to have social and environmental goals, along with committing to public transparency and legal accountability. What we've been a part of B Corp for five years and it's something we're incredibly proud of. Now, before we start, let's talk about the next hour and what format that, that will be in. Drew will introduce the New World Fund and we'll introduce Tom. Then we'll ask Tom 10 quick fire questions to really liven it up. And then we'll get into the core of it where we're asking more questions about his fund and about sustainable investing. Uh, this session is designed around being interactive, so anyone can ask any question at any point. And Drew and I will, will take those questions and ask Tom or answer them ourselves. If you're a new investor and you're not sure about some of the terms we're using or acronyms, please ask. It's, a, it's an open form and we'll do our best to explain it. Over to you, Drew. Thanks, Jamie. Uh, I think the probably big starting question would be why did we choose Nanook? Uh, for us, the decision was mainly client driven, whether it was the bushfires over Christmas, wage underpayment scandals or all kinds of governance issues that started coming up or general concern about the future. Uh, a lot of our clients wanted to know where their money was being invested and, and also wanted to be supporting something positive. Um, the concept of ESG, which I think Tom will probably talk about, which is environmental including environmental, social and governance factors in your investment decisions is growing fast, but there aren't that many in our view, really sustainable strategies. Uh, they're either too high risk or they're not, that sustainable isn't really at their core. It's just another lens they put on. Uh, yeah, we view, and Tom will talk about it, this sustainability revolution has probably been the most powerful trend of the next 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, how did we find the nook? Tom, I think it was actually at Australian Investors Association a few years back. We were talking before this about how much you've been traveling uh, in the last <laughs> last three or four years. Uh, so I think it was at the AIA, which was also founded by Austin Donnelly. Uh, and we reviewed about 50 sustainable funds or ESG funds and found Nanook was the only one that really met our expectations. So welcome, Tom. And I think Jamie's going to go with those 10 quick fire questions with some personal ones in there. Thank you. Great, great to be here and be involved again. I, I really enjoyed the last lunch we did. That was good fun. I hope, I hope this is fun too. Should I think steak fun. and wine better than uh, Zoom calls probably. <laughs> That's right. All right, Tom, the idea is uh, quick fire questions. 
one, two, three, four words, but uh, let's make them quick. You've got 10 questions. First question, best investment for Armageddon, gold, crypto, cash, or government bonds? I hope we never get there. I think uh, real Armageddon, you probably want some gold, but if, uh, if we've still got countries in play, probably cash. Great. Preferred meal in 2020, fish, chicken, beef, or beyond meat? Oh, probably fish, maybe chicken, but next year it might be uh, something without meat in it. <laughs> What's the best stock you've personally bought, ever bought? Uh, oh, I mean that's a, that's a tough one. Um, the one I the one I remember is the first one I bent, bought when I started in funds management, which was Commander Communications, many many years ago. Um, but the best ones have probably been things with um, big dislocations in price unrelated to the fundamentals where very you know very rarely you get the chance to buy things for a lot less than they're worth and those those are the ones that stick with me good should pineapple be on pizza up in queensland where i am probably should be <laughs> what's the personal investment decision you most regret i lived in sydney for 15 years and didn't buy a house <laughs> yep what advice would you give your 18-year-old self? You might have answered that, buy a house in Sydney. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, that would have been good. Okay. Getting to what I'm doing now, now earlier would have been, been good too, but I did some other fun things in the meantime. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn or TikTok? I'm, I'm not on any of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you're going to retire tomorrow, Tom, and you have to put all your capital you've saved over your whole life into just one stock, and it's one stock for your whole retirement. What, what will it be? Well, right, right now it's nanoc asset management, um, but... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Post-retirement? Good answer. Yeah. Good. Best region to invest today, US, Asia, Europe, or Latin America? Depends what your time frame is. Um, there's countries in Latin America that look spectacularly cheap now for a long-term bet, but right now I think Europe's pretty interesting um, when they come through the next wave of COVID. Um, the stimulus funding that's happening there is going to make that a pretty interesting place for a while. Great. And where do you hang your Olympic gold medal? Uh, it's in the sock drawer upstairs. <laughs> So the, for the people that don't know, Tom uh, is a gold medalist, Olympic gold medalist uh, in the 2000 Olympics for sailing. Uh, and he's got an order of Australia for services to sport. So well done on that part, Tom. Thank you. Now, uh, Drew, you're going to ask Tom a few more questions. Yeah, I thought just a good place to start would be your early career and maybe how you got started at Nanook before we get into the, you know, the detail on the strategy. Sure. I, um, I grew up in Melbourne. I went to Melbourne University and did a mechanical engineering degree coming from a family of engineers and architects. And uh, I balanced that with international sport for a decade. Um, but once I finished um, the, the sporting career after the Sydney Olympics, I actually started working in industrial consulting with a very interesting business doing manufacturing performance improvement work. Uh, that was well, that opened my mind to the potential to make the world a better place, the, the, the potential to change companies positively, to do things more efficiently, and those things really appealed to me. But the way that work was done, I was three orders of magnitude away from the economic benefit of doing that work and wanted to get into the um, finance industry uh, to do things differently. And I've had 20 years in investment and finance, um, starting in equity funds management. Uh, I did a number of years in investment banking uh, with Rothschild in, in a range of roles there. And then I worked at Consolidated Press in an investment management role um, in, in the Packer family investment company uh, before starting Nanook. Uh, and the group of us who set Nanook up, um, which was myself and the three founding shareholders, uh, Paul Chadwick, uh, Tim Ryan and Ivan Ween um, did so shortly after the financial crisis a bit over 10 years ago uh, at the end of a series of conversations um, considering where the interesting long-term investment opportunities might lie after that particular event and those conversations gravitated towards areas like food, energy and water with what we thought were likely to be extremely favourable long-term structural drivers 
and a set of sort of characteristics that lent themselves to specialised research and active management. And um, uh, there were very few other people doing that at the time. And we thought it was a, uh, a worthy endeavour that had the potential to deliver good outcomes to our clients. And if we did a good job, help, help the world. Um, so we started the business and 10 years later, not much has changed on that front. The, the thesis is still intact. In fact, um, I think validated in many ways and stronger than ever. Uh, and that's what we're still striving to do. And becoming very mainstream now um, too, isn't it? You're more, more accepted, more getting more approaches. Oh, absolutely. It's only been very recently that um, what we do has been acknowledged as um, uh, sort of logical and credible on a widespread basis. There's always been people who believed in sustainability and believed in some of the technology trends, but until people have been able to see those in a tangible way, see electric vehicles, see lots of solar energy, hear about batteries in South Australia, um, many people have not understood how close we were to that and how significant it's going to be on all our lives going forward. Yep. I thought maybe a good starting point. I know you have about eight key themes that you're, or key uh, areas of interest. Um, rather than go through all eight, maybe we target the top four that are the biggest exposures. If yep. you could provide a bit of an intro on, you know, for listeners, what does industrial efficiency mean? I kind of probably relates to what you were talking about then. Uh, health, healthcare technology, alternative materials, and maybe energy efficiency were the ones that I, I think are the largest exposures in the portfolio at the moment. So, yeah, um, they're our own very generalised sort of buckets to, to categorise the things that we invest in. Um, our firm focuses on um, a set of self-selected industries and technologies that we believe are going to contribute to um, improving the environmental sustainability and resource efficiency of the global economy. And that, that includes very obvious areas, particularly in things like clean energy and energy efficiency and in areas of um, traditional environmental investment things like sustainable materials and recycling and water treatment. Um, industrial efficiency refers to a set of, um, sort of technologies and industries that are improving the um, efficiency with which businesses are delivering their products and services. Um, and, and most of it's things like industrial automation uh, and robotics uh, and advanced manufacturing technologies, but it, um, more broadly covers uh, the um, uh, combination of, sort of wireless connectivity, edge computing and sensors, uh, big data and networks, and more recently AI and machine learning, what people you know, loosely call the industrial internet of things, that, that the use of big data and digital technology to improve um, the efficiency of a whole range of both sort of industrial processes and um, business processes. Uh, so that's quite a broad area. Uh, and within that, we're invested in quite a wide range of um, different technology solutions that are helping uh, or, or that form part of uh, that industrial internet of things um, or providing different types of, um, of solutions. And they seem to probably go across the buckets too, don't they? So if you're looking at industrial efficiency, you're also improving your energy efficiency, given energy can be a major cost for these kind of companies. Yeah, that, 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 that is correct. And sometimes it's hard to delineate between these. Which bucket? Yeah, the, these buckets. And that's, I mean, that's true when we look at the next bucket, which is healthcare technology. So we, um, we found that there were a number of, um, companies in the healthcare space that overlap with other areas of interest for us. You have surgical robotics, you have a range of diagnostic technologies that are used not only in healthcare, but in um, uh, areas like food and environmental testing. Uh, and you, you have yeah, an increasing overlap between wireless connectivity and devices, the internet of things and healthcare and what people are calling M health or mobile health. Uh, and that bucket includes companies in that space, in the wearable device space like Garmin, um, in the diagnostic technology space. We, we have a number of investments in that area, 
I think we might touch on Siemens Health in years later, but uh, businesses like Danaher, uh, Perkins Elmer, Waters Corporation with more diversified businesses. And then there's an overlap with industrial efficiency in um, a set of businesses that do what we call information services. Walters Clue is one of those, but there are others like Reed or Sevior that traditionally were publishing businesses that have uh, moved to putting um, their sort of academic and industry specific um, literature and databases online and more recently started to use the power of big data and the internet to um, draw on those databases and help clients to do that and provide analytical and information services that's allowed these businesses that historically appeared to be in structural decline to become you know, businesses that are quickly growing in, in that profitable activity. Yeah, I think they've historically provided like the financial advice or, or tax books, Walters Kluwer, uh, with all the legislation summarised. Yeah, that, that's correct. And now, I mean, big data and machine learning are allowing those kind of databases to be interrogated uh, and in the legal space for, you know, estimates to be made, um, you know, using machine learning on the probability of winning cases in the insurance industry to, you know, draw on databases to assess, you know, risks and, um, and price things in healthcare to review, you know, literature and make better informed healthcare decisions and so on. And that's a very powerful driver of efficiencies in those industries. Yeah, maybe if we back up one step, Tom, and we talk about for the listeners, you're in Sydney, you have a pool of funds and you're investing in global stocks. They're all listed stocks, are they? They are, yes. So they're, it's a public market fund. Is there any benchmark you follow? Uh, th th there is. Um, confusingly, there's a couple that we look at. The fund is a global equity fund and it's structured to be um, a global equity fund that is conventional in its structure and profile and for people who use global equity funds like your clients, something that is um, user-friendly. Uh, um, and ultimately, the, the usefulness of that product um, is determined by whether we can outperform traditional global equity benchmarks. And so the, the primary objective of the fund is over the longer term to deliver ret returns that are better than the MISCI world or MISCI or country world, whatever your reference point is for, for global equities. Um, is that a fair benchmark, given that you're, you know, you're trying to marry social and environmental goals as well? If you're, if you're trying to benchmark yourself to a fully latent capitalistic uh, index? Well, I think it's the right benchmark for a global equity fund. Um, our view as a firm, um, well, our, our, our firm exists to capitalise on a set of investment opportunities that we think um, will give us the opportunity to, to deliver on that promise. And if we do a good job, we should be able to. Uh, and okay. Yeah, the, the, the relevance of our product is really that we can do that. And as a product, we will look different to other global equity products that people are using and that diversification should be helpful to people um, uh, as well. Uh, we, we've never approached this as a compromise between investing in things doing good for the world and making investment returns. We invest in this area for the um, opportunity to, to deliver good uh, investment returns. Um, certainly over short term timeframes, it can be a challenge to um, interpret comparing us with a traditional global benchmark because yep. we focus on about 15% of total global equities. It's a big investment universe for us. It's several times larger than the ASX, um, but it has some big skews in terms of not, not having many financials, not having traditional energy and oil and gas, not having much in the way of consumer products. And as you see, those parts of the market perform differently, that can affect our relative performance. And so we do separately point to an environmental equities benchmark um, in our reporting that is a better representation of what our investment universe looks like. Um, it's really a very good proxy for about two thirds of our investment universe. Um, uh, and so that gives a better idea of whether we're, you know, how we're performing within our investment universe. And how many shares will you 
own at any one time, Tom? Typically between 65 and 70. Um, that's Out of a universe of a couple of thousand? Yeah, a bit over a thousand stocks today. And that's a universe that's growing and will continue to grow as more companies move into these areas and small companies become big enough to, to, to be eligible. So the fund is a long only fund, I understand, which means you'll invest 100% of your cash all the time into markets. Is that right? That's correct. Well, I mean, we're, we're relatively, deliberately relatively straightforward in structure. We run the fund as a fully invested fund, typically two or 3% cash balance. Um, uh, and it's an unhedged product that's globally diversified. So then um, Tom never, for the listeners, Tom never makes a call that he thinks markets are overvalued or he needs to allocate to a different asset class. That's essentially your job or Drew and our investment committee's job to decide if we want to, you know, if we think global equities are too hot and we need to go somewhere else. Tom will just make the investments 100% of the time. And how do you get the investments down to that 1,000 from, say, the 50,000 available around the world? Is that just... Is that the sectors we were talking about before, or is that? Um... It is, yes. So we we have identified a set of industries or technologies that we think are relevant to the um, investment belief set that we have, and we include companies that have a material part of their value associated with um, uh, those industry groups, all the way from companies that mine raw materials. So if you're looking at the electric vehicle space, that could be mining lithium or cobalt or um, even nickel and graphite um, through to infrastructure and service businesses at the other end of the spectrum. Um, and the only sort of, we have some criteria around uh, capitalization and liquidity and the only other um, component of constructing that universe is to, to negatively screen to ensure that we exclude things that are at odds with that investment belief set. So things like um, oil and gas exploration and production and coal mining and things that are contentious from an ethical perspective and some of our investors who um, uh, are particularly interested in that aspect of our product. What um, else is in there? Like tobacco? You wouldn't own tobacco, tobacco I assume? Adult entertainment, um, uh, human yep. rights violations, weapons and defence, um, cold and then we have sort of low thresholds around things like coal and gas generation and uh, nuclear power um, and zero thresholds around things like uranium mining, um, oil and gas exploration and production and uh, coal mining. Read a number of articles recently that said sugar should be um, in that list. Do you have a view on that? I can see the argument for that. Um, uh, it's not something that I think our investors are crying out for. Um, we do have some companies within our broad remit that are in that sort of space. So historically, biofuels was seen as one of the areas that could contribute to improving global sustainability. And a decade ago, that was probably the case from a low starting point. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, Brazilian ethanol producers produce from sugar and yeah, within our remit. Um, today, uh, you know, the, the way that our environmental problems are likely to be solved, I don't see biofuels as being a big part of that other than perhaps in the aviation industry. Um, but even there, I don't think it'll be crop-based biofuels like corn and sugar. Yeah, I was thinking sugar more in eating patterns than anything else. So. Yeah, I, I, yeah, and I understand that. And food's an interesting one because when you look at when you look at the way the world needs to change to address some of the challenges that are there today, um, agriculture is one of the very difficult areas. Um, you know, it accounts for 25 or 30 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions and a raft of other environmental problems. And there's a big, you know, challenge to meet rising consumption around the world um, from limited agricultural resources, uh, as well as addressing hand in hand um, health issues that you know, you're, you're alluding to. Um, and, and I think that'll be, a, you know, it, it hasn't been a major focus for us in the last decade, but in the next decade, I think we'll start to see some big changes there. In our realm, this, this is an area called ESG, or as Drew mentioned before, environmental, social and governance. When you started 11 years ago, it was still, we would have expected you to be B 
barefoot and uh, running around with a spear because for investments, it was very rare to have an ESG fund. There's a lot of ESG funds around now. Every major fund manager in the world has an ESG option. Um, so maybe we just clarify for the listeners what the each of the E, the S and the G means for you and your take on this kind of popular investing now has a tint of green, actually just green, than it was when you first started. Yeah, I, I think it's important to um, delineate between green and ESG and even between green and ESG and ethical. Yep. Um, there's a great deal of confusion um, that's been created by mixing and matching terms like ESG and SRI and responsible investment. Um, ESG is simply an acronym for environmental, social and governance. Um, ESG investment by itself doesn't really mean anything. It could mean lots of different things to different people. Um, ESG integration is a very widely adopted practice within funds management of considering environmental, social and governance related risks in investment decision-making and portfolio construction. And to be frank, any good active manager has been doing that forever and it's not something that's new. What's changed is a business imperative to be seen to be doing ESG. And so most investment managers now do publicise the fact that they do ESG integration. And there's a, there's a group called the UNPRI, the UN Principles of Responsible Investment, to which m- most managers are now... Um, Pretty much everyone, yeah. ...that um, uh, is really the UN Principles of ESG Integration, and that's caused a lot of confusion as to what ESG is. So, yes, there's an enormous amount of money now invested in strategies that uh, are labelled ESG or promote ESG integration as part of what they do. But in most cases, they're not really any different from what's been there historically. Um, What is different is the emergence of a um, broad um, area you might call responsible investment, which is trying to marry up um, financial outcomes that we've all been striving for all along with a set of different non-financial outcomes that come from different types of strategies. And um, that really started with ethical investment, excluding companies that are doing bad things. And uh, historically, um, uh, you know, that, that, that's that been something that a small part of the broader market has demanded and increasingly people are looking for that. Um, more recently- So it's a negative screen, right? We've got a question yeah. which is about um, just, just, just explain. The question is asking us to explain the difference between positive and negative screens. So what you yep. just mentioned is yep. negative screens is well, taking stocks out of the realm. Yeah, it's, it's not necessarily the way I think about it is this: that, that you have within responsible investment, you have ethical strategies that attempt to avoid investing in bad companies. You have ESG strategies that typically look to invest in companies whose E, S, and G practices are. Um, or conform well to our idea of what best practice might be with a view to lowering risk in investment strategies, you know, very sensible thing to do. Um, You have engagement strategies, which um, uh, seek to influence the behaviour of companies that managers are investing in to make them improve their um, uh, social environment, you know, or or governance performance. And you have strategies that are sustainably themed or impact strategies that are investing in companies that are doing things that are going to make for a better world. And each of those strategies, they're not mutually exclusive. So a fund like ours is a sustainably themed strategy, but it's also ethical because we have a a negative screening framework. And each of those strategies can be implemented in different ways. So you can have negatively screened strategies, you can have positively screened strategies, you can have best in class strategies, and there are other ways of factoring those things in. So an ethical fund that's put together with a negative screening strategy would be different from one that was best in class where you might have mining companies, but you'd have BHP, not Rio, because it was more ethical. Um, And and so it's important to understand both those dimensions of each of the products in order to find something that will marry up with what an individual investor is looking for and, you know, what the products are actually um, providing. 
What What do you think uh, COVID's done for your universe or for the potential over the next five or ten years? So we're talking about the you know policy stimulus all over the world with a lot of it directed into more sustainable technology. Has it been a positive or a negative? Do you think more more ideas available? Oh, I think I think it's a um, it's a big positive. Um, it's come at a point in time where we were already in the midst of a huge shift in global environmental policy. So towards the end of last year, you were seeing countries around the world starting to embrace net zero carbon emission targets for typically for 2050. And that paused during COVID, but with the kind of environmental events that we've been seeing happening around the world this year, we had our bushfires, the same things happening in the US now, you've got shrinking Arctic ice, you've got record temperatures, you've got all sorts of, you know, very um, obvious issues. Those are very much, you know, still on the agenda. And in fact, I was reading in the news this morning that um, in the last day, China has announced its ambition to have a 2060 net zero emission um, target, which is um, pr just, just profound in terms of the changes that would be required or are required in the Chinese economy to achieve that. Um, uh, important and, to Australia as well, isn't it? Yeah, and, and look, the government here hasn't, well, the, the federal government, despite the state governments committing to 2050 targets, the, the federal government hasn't yet done that, but it's it's been backed into a corner now and starting to acknowledge the need to do that and starting to put in place some of the policies that would flow from that anyway. Um, and so that was the backdrop. And now COVID's come along, disrupted the global economy. Um, once the sort of healthcare and social issues are sort of under control, the efforts will be to stimulate economic activity. And in exactly the same way that we saw sustainable technologies as an enormous disproportionately large beneficiary of what happened after the financial crisis in 2009 uh, and the years subsequent to that, you're going to see the same thing now. So a, a very large amount of stimulus funding is being di directed towards um, things that we're likely to be investing in. And that'll be deployed over you know, most of the next decade in Europe, it's over six or seven years and drive change at a much more rapid pace than we would have seen otherwise. So the, the trends were starting to accelerate already before COVID. Um, and now we're seeing what will almost certainly be a set of sort of regulation and stimulus that drives that even quicker. Does that result in more companies or, or more capital or more expansion? Is that where you expect the stimulus to come or more, or more companies becoming more sustainable? Um, to some extent, it's, you know, it'll be short term measures to drive economic activity. It'll be sort of stimulus to buy electric vehicles and build charging infrastructure and renovate buildings in an energy efficient manner. Um, if you step back and look at what the governments are trying to achieve, um, that, I mean, we've seen in the last decade really extraordinary progress in a set of, in a relatively small number of technologies in solar and wind and battery energy storage and more recently in electric vehicles and a handful of prominent energy efficiency technologies like LED light globes. All those things were, you know, um, totally uneconomically viable a decade ago. And what the government policy initiatives and in some cases it was mandates, in some cases it's regulation, in some cases it's stimulus have done in the last decade is take some of those nascent technology solutions that were already operating in, in niche markets, um, uh, allow those markets to grow very rapidly or force those to, to grow very rapidly and attract research and development and investment into those areas, which has very quickly driven the cost down, increased the level of competition, you know, brought, brought prices down and made those technologies over a, a relatively short time frame, um, over, over seven or eight years, economically viable solutions that will prosper in their own right. And you're gonna see that happen, not just in the, you know, in the 20% of the economy in which it's already happened, but you're gonna see that kind of dynamic at, at, at play across the whole economy in the next decade as, as people try and but well, you know, as soon as you've adopted this ambition to get to 2050 net zero emissions, it, it follows that you need to do that. We've got a question on volatility as well. So maybe using March, April, for an example, did sustainable investments outperform traditional benchmarks? 
than you know the S and P five hundred or in in draw in in the the amount they fell. If you look at most of the research around how um, ESG products um, have performed over time, most of them have um, uh, performed better from a risk perspective, and many of them from a return perspective as well. Um, that's largely to do with excluding oil and gas and looking at periods in which the oil price has fallen. Um, it, it, it is you know, it's completely logical that an ESG strategy, um, uh, which is focused on you know, best practice governance structures, would result in a lower volatility set of stocks. Um, and that, that, that's quite normal. Um, uh, whether you know, sustainably themed and more you know, uh, nuanced strategies like ours perform well during those kind of timeframes depends a bit on what drives the market down. Um, if you see a large industrial downturn or a big shift, you know, in the technology space that's negative, that could be, you know, unfavourable in the short term. Um, when it comes to our strategy, you know, it was an objective when we designed the fund that it had relatively benign risk characteristics. It's a, it's a means through which investors can get exposure to all these trends, but not have to stay awake at night worrying about it being a risky proposition. And quite deliberately, the volatility characteristics of our fund are relatively benign. We outperformed in February and March when markets fell sharply. That was how we would have hoped that the fund would perform. And over time, um, you know, our performance as markets have fallen has generally been better than the market. Yep. And a lot of the, so a lot of the benchmarks have a lot of tech as well, which whilst you've got some tech exposure through these kind of industrial efficiency companies you you're not 40 percent in apple and facebook and these companies that a lot of yeah, them are you need to if you're going to look at responsible investment strategies you do need to get to look at what the actual underlying portfolios look like a lot of them look a lot like a mainstream you know yeah. equity fund um, they tend to be biased towards um, large cap u.s um, financials, healthcare and technology companies, but so are mainstream funds and industries. Um, and they'll tend to be underweight in areas like oil and gas, but you won't see that amongst the larger holdings in those funds um, uh, anyway. Is it right to say some of these um, younger companies and not smaller, but younger, they've been around for less than 20 years, are more in tune with um, having uh, being aware of their social impact and their environmental impact versus say something that's been around for a hundred years or is it a, is it a mindset, is it a mindset change or is it, or is it, or is it different to that? I'm sure there's lots of cases where that, um, that is true, particularly in sort of the space we look where companies have been established to take advantage of these kind of trends. Uh, my, my, you know, initial reaction when you say that is actually, it's the large companies that can afford to care about these things, yep. that are probably being most prominent in promoting their activities. Um, there's a there's there's a huge shift going on globally at a government level towards embracing environmental targets. There's a similarly important shift going on in the corporate world with companies adopting similar um, uh, company level emission targets. You're seeing. You know, Amazon and Microsoft and Facebook and Nestle and Ikea and you know, everyone's following embracing, you know, having net zero emission footprints at a company um, level as well. And mostly they're the companies that can afford to be, to be doing that. Um, the, the challenge for, for many of those, and if you look at the, you know, his, you look at the oil and gas companies as an example, many of those are trying to pivot towards um, new technology as well, like the auto industry, those businesses yep. are challenging with the, the, the legacy of their existing businesses. And just because they're pursuing new opportunities relevant to a environmentally sustainable future doesn't mean that they have, um, don't have a huge economic handbrake on for a long time uh, whilst that's going on. Why don't we talk stocks, Drew? Let's turn the conversation to what you hold, Tom, within your portfolio and give listeners a bit of a flavour. Um, do you want to kick that conversation off, Drew? Yeah, I've got one. I keep seeing these, uh, is it the French group Air Liquide uh, trucks coming past or yeah. <laughs> coming past my house? I live near a hospital. Yeah. Uh, I assume it's related to that. And that seems to be pretty consistently in your, in your top 10. Uh, so what do they do? How do they fit the sustainability theme? 
Yeah, uh, so Air Liquide is one of the leading global industrial gas businesses. Uh, and, and we also have a holding in um, uh, another one, which is a US listed company called Air Products and Chemicals. Um, the other major global player is Lind, which is a German business. Um, and we have a position in a small Japanese business called Air, uh, Air Water. Um, and they provide um, gases like oxygen, nitrogen, carbon dioxide into um, industries that need that. Most of it's into um, industrial plants that use those in their processes or as feedstocks for whatever they're, they're doing. Uh, and uh, the other big market is in, um, in healthcare, um, supplying gases to, to hospitals particularly. Um, which is probably what, what you're seeing. Um, and they are um, uh, very interesting businesses um, from, a, from an investment perspective. They're very defensive industrial businesses. They operate under um, uh, very favourable long-term contracts to supply gases to their customers um, uh, and consequently are very stable businesses from an economic perspective. Um, they're at an interesting point in time because one of the major trends of the next couple of decades is very likely to be um, a shift towards using hydrogen as a substitute for fossil fuels. And um, there's been a lot of very speculative interest in anything to do with that trend. If you look at um, businesses doing hydrogen fuel cells or making you know, canisters to store hydrogen or whatever it might be, most of them are um, uh, trading at you know, multiples that reflect very high expectations. Um, our sort of experience in industries with similar dynamics is that um, ultimately these businesses are the ones who are likely to capture a good deal of the economic value associated with people shifting to hydrogen. It's their customers who are going to be the ones making the big shift and these are businesses that specialise in providing um, hydrogen and in fact you know where hydrogen is being used today they're often the suppliers of it already and you've seen you know that by far the biggest announced um, green hydrogen project globally uh, is in um, Saudi Arabia, uh, Air Products and Chemicals announced yeah, it's a $5 billion project um, to produce hydrogen from uh, a very large scale solar project. Um, uh, and you know, they're likely to, um, to, to benefit economically from that type of project going forward. Uh, so that they, 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 I mean, ultimately we buy stocks because we think they're going to um, provide good risk adjusted returns in our portfolio and we make that assessment in relation to our understanding of their value. Um, we started investing in those businesses a couple of years ago when we thought they were relatively attractive given their um, quality of earnings and, and the way they were priced by the market and they have performed well um, since then. And in the period of uncertainty earlier this year, we increased our exposure in those businesses um, because in a, you know, in a environment of considerable uncertainty about the short-term earnings outlook, those businesses that actually stood to um, uh, maintain fairly stable earnings with the potential to benefit from a more rapid, you know, shift towards hydrogen. And that's certainly playing out in terms of the government policy initiatives that are being announced around the world. Ten tens of billions of dollars of funding um, has been announced in Europe to support growth in hydrogen you know, Europe, Germany, uh, Australia, you know, countries around the world are all announcing strategies um, to, to promote um, production and use of hydrogen. I think maybe another one would be Carlyle Company. So I was having, having a look, it was like the original US rubber, rubber uh, manufacturer, wasn't it? Like yeah, making uh, rubber tyres. Carlyle's a business not many people have um, come across. It's a sort of undercovered mid-sized um, US industrial conglomerate um, with a fairly eclectic mix of businesses. Um, our interest in that business is a construction materials business. It's a leader in um, uh, solid um, rubber insulation products that are used in a very widespread basis in particularly in commercial buildings um, in the US and um, uh, you know therefore a beneficiary of um, tightening uh, building energy efficiency 
standards. You know, we'd expect that that business will benefit in coming years as um, greater emphasis is placed on improving building energy um, efficiency. Now, um, we like the business because it generates excellent return on equity, something like 16 or 17% or higher, uh, and it's been attractively valued. And we bought the business um, uh, um, uh, or bought shares in the company um, many years ago, but increased our position in that stock uh, a couple of years ago when the oil price fell, um, because that's a major raw material input into its um, uh, into its construction material, into its rubber products, um, and that's seen uh, until COVID came along uh, an improvement in earnings. Um, so they're ultimately helping companies save money almost on and making the uh, CBDs more energy efficient by saving companies money on um, energy. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're more likely to be a beneficiary of regulation rather than it being an economically driven... Companies um, wouldn't proactively do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but, but, but that's one of the... If you look at what's happening around the world today, there's some very prominent environmental themes. You know, electric vehicles is in the paper every day. People, you know, are talking about solar and wind and batteries on the grid and um, you know, anything to do with those things or hydrogen has attracted a lot of attention. There are some similarly large structural shifts in areas like agriculture and in building energy efficiency, um, things like sustainable packaging and sustainable materials that aren't getting that attention and where we're seeing uh, potentially considerably more attractively priced opportunities um, today. So building energy efficiency, you know, in Europe, as part of the EU's sort of stimulus program, they're talking about trying to increase the renovation rate of buildings in Europe um, by two and a half or three times, which involves sort of 80 to 100 billion euro per annum of additional expenditure on um, you know, building material and renovation. Uh, and that's because you know, whilst we have very strict um, uh, energy efficiency standards and environmental regulation for new building, um, most of the building stock was built well before those standards came into place. And if you want to go anywhere close to achieving the environmental objectives people have, you, you have to address that problem and it'll happen through regulation. Um, I had an, uh, probably another one, which is the, probably the most well-known name in the portfolio is Microsoft. Uh, can you explain the massive uh, efficiencies it's providing? I know we use SharePoint Teams. We're not using Teams today. We're using Zoom. Uh, but all their platforms, and even before COVID, it seems like COVID's just ramped it up two or three yeah. times. I mean, I mean Microsoft, sorry, before you start, so Microsoft's something that Drew and I have been um, a big fan of for a long period of time, directly and indirectly in portfolios for their exposure to the cloud. Um, yeah. So... Just, yeah, just look, if you go back to your question of you know, if you were going to own one stock for the next decade, um, you know Microsoft's got a lot of appeal on that front. Um, it's in our investment universe because of its cloud services business. Um, that is effectively the infrastructure for the, you know, the, the architecture that sits behind the Internet of Things um, that we're interested in, and so um, uh, its business as um, is the case with Amazon accounts in our mind for enough of Microsoft's value to qualify for inclusion in our investment universe. So it's, it's really the fact that it is a cloud services um, provider that makes it eligible for us. Um, and then once it's in the investment universe, yeah, at the end of the day, it's about making a judgment about the value of the business and the return, risk adjusted return potential. And um, we've had it in the portfolio for a couple of years now uh, and that's clearly done very well over that time. Um, you know, pleasingly, in this case, I think partly for the for the right reasons, because that part of its business has continued to grow very rapidly and is very profitable, um, and that's been recognised by the market. Um, and it's one of you know a number of stocks that we increased in position size in March when markets were dislocating, um, uh, and yeah, we felt you know, and I think it's been validated that it was likely to be a beneficiary from the short-term um, dynamics that were, were created by what was happening with COVID. And the cloud's all about removing paper and physical work, isn't it? Being able to work from anywhere. So reducing yeah, yeah. companies' costs and reducing the 
energy. In terms of industrial efficiency broadly, it's um, providing um, the capacity to do things that otherwise, you know, aren't able to be done or are going to be too expensive. Um, you know, we have access to, you know, incredibly sophisticated computing through our mobile phones. I mean, you, you're using Siri, you're doing voice recognition, you're accessing extraordinary information through Google Maps. We're doing all those things all the time. Um, that's not because it's cheap enough to put all of that on our telephones at the moment. It's because there's economies of scale in that cloud computing platform that enable that to happen. And that kind of um, uh, computing power applied to all sorts of different problems in the business and industrial landscape is going to, you know, create huge efficiencies. Um, yeah, I think NAB engaged Microsoft recently as well to help um, streamline something like 150 manual processes that were occurring within the bank. Yeah, yeah. And as we move to, um, to those kind of problems being solved using machine learning rather than um, uh, traditional sort of structured um, computing solutions, the cloud and the, 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 you know, the, the access, the universal access to the kind of computing power that that provides um, is going to be very important. Yeah. Um, and it's, look, it's, a, you know, it's an interesting and evolving space and there's a set of opportunities that sit around that because that sort of um, hub and spoke kind of model may not ultimately be exactly what that system looks like in the same way that you're seeing that change happening in the energy system today. People are talking more and more about things like edge computing and having um, some of the processing power spread around, but we still think that Amazon and Microsoft are extraordinarily well positioned to continue capturing a disproportionate share of cloud computing because of their scale and technology advantage. Do we have time for one more, Jamie? Or yeah, I think so, Drew. Yep. I think it sounds like one of your favorite. I was going to ask which one your favorite is in the portfolio. You were mentioning it's like Siemens. Kids, you don't have a favorite. <laughs> yeah, look, it's, you know, Microsoft's hard to. Uh, it's one thing to have a favorite in terms of the actual businesses and what the businesses do. Because it's really, I mean, there's very interesting businesses in our portfolio. Um, uh, yeah, and then when it comes to from an investment perspective, where the return potential is. Um, it's hard to get as excited about Microsoft now, given how it's um, performed. Uh, and so, we, yeah, we've got businesses like Ocado, which is a um, US grocery business. Um, but really, it's a, it's a technology business that has developed um, a technology suite for online order fulfillment using totally automated warehousing. Um, and, and it's selling that technology around the world. And that's a really interesting cool business doing something that is going to provide massive efficiencies, you know, initially in the grocery space, you're going to see it here in Australia with uh, deals they have with the, the local um, chains. Um, but then ultimately that can be transported across other industries as well. Um, but once again, that's performed very well and for not surprising reasons recently. Um, we were talking yesterday internally about Intel, which is a holding in the fund. Um, now Intel's had a horrible run over quite a long period of time now. Um, but it is a you know dominant business in um, in uh, Semi uh, semiconductors, logic semiconductors globally, um, with competitive advantages in that space that are not going to go away um, overnight. Uh, and within that business, and we were, this is what we we're discussing yesterday, it owns a business called Mobileye, which is the dominant provider today of vision-based. Um, active safety and autonomy solutions in the automotive space. Um, but no one's really talking about that. And that's an area that's growing very fast. And if you apply a Tesla-like sort of multiple to, to that business within Intel, actually things, you know, it's quite, quite interesting. So Intel's trading on a forward PE of nine or 10 times um, for a business that actually is still, you know, in the crosshairs of many of the trends that we're interested in. Mm. Um, and from an investment perspective, something like that offers you know, huge upside if some of the challenges of the business can be overcome going forward and some of the nascent technologies inside it are able to um, scale and the value of those to be, to be realised. Because all these if industrial efficiency, robotics, artificial intelligence, machine learning relies on 
computer chips and, and semiconductors to... And if you look at a stock like NVIDIA, uh, no one's been able to stop the rise and rise in NVIDIA in the last uh, two years versus... And it does, you know, it, it's playing a similar role to what potentially Intel would yeah. play for some of these organisations. So when we talk about cloud, do you ever think about how much, and this is a question from a, from a client of ours, do you ever think about how much energy it takes for the cloud? Yeah, essentially. Um, so it's it's all about storing data um, and uh, storage of data and being live all the time. So some of these facilities, which are now data storage facilities, and you can invest directly uh, in them, coming like DXN on the Australian market, they consume an enormous amount of power. Um, and then to be able to transfer that data right around the world. Have you ever, is, 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 does that get into your lens for a stock like Microsoft? Or? I mean, it, 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 yes, it does. I mean, the way I tend to think maybe this is the sort of glass half full um, approach is, I mean, yes, that's a huge issue. Yes, there's a requirement for huge amounts of electricity to support those um, facilities. And to me, that means people are going to be building more renewable energy and battery storage and putting in place the um, uh, electrical, you know, um, architecture to support that, which will benefit a whole bunch of other companies that we're potentially able to invest in. Um, and, and you are seeing, you know, all of those major tech companies commit, you know, to net zero carbon emissions and buying under contract huge amounts of renewable energy to fulfil that obligation. And in fact, going further than that in some cases to to, you know, in Microsoft's case to, um, uh, you know, uh, sequester or, you know, overcome historic emissions going back to the start of the, the company. And, um, yeah, I think they've got the right attitude um, towards that. The one that, the one that I've found perplexing is cryptocurrencies because my understanding of the energy consumption of the data processing required to support Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies is, um, is staggeringly large. You're talking about percentage points of global electricity consumption at a point in time where that's not even a, a blip on the radar of total currency in the, mm. in the world. And yep. it, you know, it's, it's always appeared to me to be somewhat unsustainable to, to think that crypto is going to replace the currencies we have today um, purely based around the energy consumption. Um, requirements but yeah um, fascinating lens to look at crypto through i've never never thought about it in that perspective yeah i mean the, the crypto is done in iceland and canada where there's cheap hydroelectricity that's for a for a very good reason and maybe one last comment uh i think we have to wrap up soon but tesla isn't part of the fun but i know you've got uh strong opinions on it you own a tesla tom i uh, no, but i i well I've said you know, that, that that would be, you know, probably my likely investment with Tesla. Um, and I, I really do admire what the company does. And I'm staggered by the progress that they've made over the last decade. And, and they're to be commended for that. Um, we've always struggled to reconcile the price with the risks that they don't achieve the kind of growth that's been priced into the stock. And that's still the case today. Mm. Um, where we've been arguably wrong about that in the last couple of years is um, they've successfully scaled production, which I think is, you know, it's been commendable on their part, whilst others have failed to do that. And we've not yet seen the competition come from the major auto manufacturers that we've anticipated will arrive and um, stabilise Tesla's EV market share at levels below that which the true believers seem to think is going to persist longer term. Um, and we still think that is going to happen, that you're going to see um, a raft of high quality competitive offerings from all of the major auto manufacturers in the next few years that will um, see um, you know, Tesla having to compete in a way that it, it really hasn't to date. Um, right now, they're in a fantastic position. You know, the governments are wanting people to buy more EVs. They have by far the best sort of product offering out there that's available in scale today. And whilst that remains the case, they're likely to do very well. But you're already seeing, um, you know, some pretty good products coming out from you know, Polestar, which is the Volvo sister company doing EVs. 
um, Volkswagens, ID3s um, coming to market in the next couple of months in Europe. Uh, and you'll see, you know, similar offerings from um, Mercedes and BMW and so on in, in, in coming years. Um, so look, it's a, you know, it's, it's a fascinating case study. We haven't owned it, which this year, you know, in hindsight, um, we would have, you know, we would have- expensive at $200, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but we look at that space and think that there are, um, you know, that there are a raft of ways, well, there are a very large number of companies that will benefit from electrification of transport in coming years. Uh, and there are ways to get exposure to that growth without paying the kind of valuations and taking what we see as the risk of owning Tesla um, uh, to, to benefit from that. It's an interesting point, Tom. If we had to classify you as a value fund or a growth fund, or, or where does your style fit between value and growth? I know it's very much trying to put you in one of those two buckets, but... Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. I mean, I think people tend to think of things in three buckets, value, growth, and core or style neutral. And we, we sit somewhere in the middle there. Our style, if anything, you describe as quality at a reasonable price. Um, if you look at the kind of things we invest in, they're, they're not, not homogeneous. So we do have uh, you know, some Amazon and some Microsoft, and we've done very well for, from some high growth businesses like Intuitive Surgical. Um, uh, and at the same time, we have stocks in the portfolio like Carlisle that are much more you know, value in nature. Um, uh, the typical sort of, you know, sweet spot for us is in mature, profitable industrial businesses or technology businesses that, um, uh, you know, are, are leaders within their space um, that stand to see increasing growth in future years um, because of the way in which the world is evolving and are likely to see their earnings rise, and you know, the, the, ultimately that's reflected in share prices that we can um, uh, we can benefit from. And that you know, that sort of set of characteristics isn't overtly growth, and it isn't overtly value. It can capture companies of both those types, but we're, we're somewhere in the middle. And you're not looking for those sort of higher risk emerging technologies very much. Uh, cool. No, I mean. We, Let's make two comments. One, we're not in the business of taking binary bets with our clients' money on whether something can commercialise successfully. Uh, that's a judgment that, generally speaking, even the companies themselves can't give you a good answer to. Um, the the um, the other point is, for most of the uh, problems that we look at globally where sustainable technologies are going to provide a solution longer term, those sustainable technologies already exist today and are commercially viable in niche applications. Um, you know, hydrogen is, you know, green hydrogen is very expensive, um, but we don't need a new technology to produce green hydrogen. We have solar power, we have hydrogen electrolyzers. Almost certainly that's what's going to be used for decades to come. Um, uh, and it's about understanding who benefits from the scaling of those industries um, over time, uh, rather than you know trying to find the new way of making hydrogen. Um, solar panels have been you know commercially viable for fifty or sixty years. Fifty or sixty years ago, the only commercially viable application was on a satellite in space. Um, but but as the costs come down, the commercial viability has expanded, and as it's come down with the support of subsidies more recently, now it's the cheapest source of electricity generation in most parts of the world. Um, and, and that same sort of dynamic will happen, we think, generally speaking, with a set of technologies that are already there in front of us. I think that's right, Tom. Uh, things changed very quickly. Microsoft, 10 years ago, looked like a company pushing out Windows 3.1 in a cardboard box uh, bought from Kmart and 10 years later, it's uh, number two in the cloud. Um, so things do change quickly and it's important to be at the front of that change. We, we want to say thank you to you, Tom. You spent an hour, hour and a half with us. Um, yeah, that's not your job is to talk to us. It's to, to invest money. So thanks, Tom. Um, I'm sure you can hear a, a, a round of applause from all our listeners. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed the last hour and a half.
Thank you for having me on. Um, I, I enjoy our discussions. Um, look forward to speaking to you again. Great. Hopefully over, over lunch again next time. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. Thanks to the listeners. Uh, join us next week. There'll be another instalment of Market Thinkers uh, webinar to anyone in Melbourne. Um, stay strong. Lockdown continues. Uh, but if you've seen the numbers uh, coming out of the UK, lockdown, they're going to lockdown as well. So uh, stay strong. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, Drew. See you next week. Thanks.